Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn. I have two great Christmas stories for you today. The first is called, What Christmas Is As We Grow Older, by Charles Dickens. And the second is called, How the Captain Made Christmas, by Thomas Nelson Page. And now our first story, What Christmas Is As We Grow Older. Dickens wrote this Christmas vignette for his two-penny magazine, Household Words, in 1851. He published reader interest stories and essays on a weekly basis between 1850 and 1859, but his Christmas stories were always a highlight. In this story, Dickens intertwines his disillusionment with his return to a youthful optimism. It's really very personal and heartfelt, coming after the deaths of his father and daughter. I think we could benefit from its plea to stop complaining accept and understand the past, and savor Christmas as a time for reconciliation. And now, What Christmas Is As We Grow Older, by Charles Dickens. Time was, with most of us, when Christmas Day, encircling all our limited world like a magic ring, left nothing out for us to miss or seek, bound together all our home enjoyments, affections, and hopes, grouped everything and every one, "'around the Christmas fire, "'and made the little picture shining in our bright young eyes complete. "'Time came, perhaps, all so soon, "'when our thoughts overleaped that narrow boundary, "'when there was someone very dear, we thought then, "'very beautiful and absolutely perfect, "'wanting to the fullness of our happiness, "'when we were wanting too, or we thought so, "'which did just as well, at the Christmas hearth, by which that someone sat, and when we intertwined with every wreath and garland of our life that someone's name. That was the time for the bright visionary Christmases which have long arisen from us to show faintly, after summer rain, in the palest edges of the rainbow. That was the time for the beautified enjoyment of the things that were to be, and never were. And yet the things that were so real in our resolute hope that it would be hard to say now— what realities achieved since have been stronger. What? Did that Christmas never really come when we and the priceless pearl who was our young choice were received, after the happiest of totally impossible marriages, by the two united families previously at daggers, drawn out on our account? When brothers and sisters-in-law, who had always been rather cool to us before our relationship was affected, perfectly doted on us, and when fathers and mothers overwhelmed us with unlimited incomes. Was that Christmas dinner never really eaten, after which we arose and generously and eloquently rendered honor to our late rival, present in the company, then in there exchanging friendship and forgiveness, and founding an attachment, not to be surpassed in Greek or Roman story, which subsisted until death? Has that same rival long ceased to care for that same priceless pearl, and married for money, and become usurious? Above all, do we really know now that we should probably have been miserable if we had won and worn the pearl, and that we are better without her? That Christmas when we had recently achieved so much fame, when we had been carried in triumph somewhere, for doing something great and good— when we had won an honored and ennobled name, and arrived and were received at home by a shower of tears of joy. 
"'Is it possible that that Christmas has not come yet? "'And is our life here, at the best, so constituted that, "'pausing as we advance at such a noticeable milestone in the track at this great birthday, "'we look back on the things that never were, "'as naturally and full, as gravely as on the things that have been and are gone, "'or have been and still are? "'If it be so, and so it seems to be true,' "'Must we come to the conclusion that life is a little better than a dream, "'and little worth the loves and strivings that we crowd into it?' "'No. "'Far be such miscalled philosophy from us, dear reader, on Christmas Day. "'Nearer and closer to our hearts be the Christmas spirit, "'which is the spirit of active usefulness, perseverance, "'cheerful discharge of duty, kindness and forbearance. "'It is in the last virtues especially,' kindness and forbearance, that we are, or should be, strengthened by the unaccomplished visions of our youth. For who shall say that they are not our teachers to deal gently even with the impalpable nothings of the earth? Therefore, as we grow older, let us be more thankful that that circle of our Christmas associations, and of the lessons that they bring, expands. Let us welcome every one of them, and summon them to take their places by the Christmas hearth. Welcome, old aspirations, glittering creatures of an ardent fancy, to your shelter underneath the holly. We know you, and have not outlived you yet. Welcome, old projects, and old loves, however fleeting, to your nooks among the steadier lights that burn around us. Welcome, all that was ever real to our hearts, and for the earnestness that made you real. Thanks to heaven! Do we build no Christmas castles in the clouds now? Let our thoughts, fluttering like butterflies among these flowers of children, bear witness. Before this boy there stretches out a future, brighter than ever looked on in our old romantic time, brighter than we ever looked on in our old romantic time, but bright with honor and with truth. Around this little head on which the sunny curls lie heaped, the graces sport as prettily as airily as when there was no scythe within the reach of time to shear away the curls of our first love. Upon another girl's face, dear it, placider but smiling bright, a quiet and contented little face, we see home fairly written. Shining from the word as rays shine from a star, we see how, when our graves are old, other hopes than ours are young, other hearts than ours are moved. How other ways are smoothed, how other happiness blooms, ripens, and decays, no, not decays, for other homes and other bands of children, not yet in being, nor for ages yet to be, arise, and bloom and ripen to the end of all. Welcome, everything! Welcome, alike what has been, and what never was, and what hope may be, to your shelter underneath the holly. TO YOUR PLACES ROUND THE CHRISTMAS FIRE, WHERE WHAT IS SITS OPEN-HEARTED. IN YONDER SHADOW DO WE SEE OBTRUDING FURTIVELY UPON THE BLAZE AN ENEMY'S FACE? BY CHRISTMAS DAY WE DO FORGIVE HIM. IF THE INJURY HE HAS DONE US MAY ADMIT OF SUCH COMPANIONSHIP, LET HIM COME HERE AND TAKE HIS PLACE. IF OTHERWISE, UNHAPPILY, LET HIM GO HENCE, ASSURED THAT WE WILL NEVER INJURE NOR ACCUSE HIM. On this day, we shut out nothing. Pause. 
says a low voice. Nothing? Think. On Christmas Day, we will shut out from our fireside? Nothing. Not the shadow of a vast city where the withered leaves are lying deep? The voice replies. Not the shadow that darkens the whole globe? Not the shadow of the city of the dead? Not even that. Of all days of the year, we will turn our faces towards that city upon Christmas Day, and from its silent host bring those we loved among us. City of the dead, in the blessed name wherein we are gathered together at this time, and in the presence that is here among us, according to the promise, we will receive, and not dismiss, thy people who are dear to us. Yes, we can look upon these children angels that alight, so solemnly, so beautifully among the living children by the fire, and can bear to think how they departed from us. Entertaining angels unawares, as the patriarchs did, the playful children are unconscious of their guests, but we can see them, can see a radiant arm around one favorite neck, as if they were a tempting of that child away. Among the celestial figures there is one, a poor misshapen boy on earth, of a glorious beauty now, of whom his dying mother said it grieved her much to leave him here, alone, for so many years, as it was likely would elapse before he came to her, being such a little child. But he went quickly, and was laid upon her breast, and in her hand she leads him. There was a gallant boy who fell far away, upon a burning sand beneath the burning sun, and said, Tell them at home, with my last love, how much I could have wished to kiss them once, but that I died contented, and had done my duty. Or there was another, over whom they read the words, Therefore we commit his body to the deep, and so consigned him to the lonely ocean, and sailed on. Or there was another, who lay down to his rest in the dark shadow of a great forest, and, on earth, awoke no more. Oh, shall they not, from sand and sea and forest, be brought home at such a time? There was a dear girl, almost a woman, never to be one, who made a morning Christmas in a house of joy, and went her trackless way to the silent city. Do we recollect her, worn out, faintly whispering what could not be heard, and falling into that last sleep for weariness. Oh, look upon her now! Oh, look upon her beauty, her serenity, her changeless youth, her happiness! The daughter of Jairus was recalled to life, to die, but she, more blessed, has heard the same voice, saying unto her, Arise forever! We had a friend who was our friend from early days, with whom we often pictured the changes that were to come upon our lives, and merrily imagined how we would speak, and walk, and think, and talk, when we came to be old. His destined habitation in the city of the dead received him in his prime. Shall he be shut out from our Christmas remembrance? Would his love have so excluded us? Lost friend, lost child, lost parent, "'Sister, brother, husband, wife, "'we will not so discard you. "'You shall hold your cherished places "'in our Christmas hearts "'and by our Christmas fires, 
and in the season of immortal hope, and on the birthday of immortal mercy, we will shut out nothing. The winter sun goes down over town and village. On the sea it makes a rosy path, as if the sacred tread were fresh upon the water. A few more moments, and it sinks, and night comes on, and lights begin to sparkle in the prospect. On the hillside beyond the shapelessly diffused town, and in the quiet keeping of the trees that gird the village steeple, remembrances are cut in stone, planted in common flowers, growing in grass, entwined with lowly brambles around many a mound of earth. In town and village there are doors and windows closed against the weather. There are flaming logs heaped high. There are joyful faces. There is healthy music of voices. Be all ungentleness and harm excluded from the temples of the household gods. But be those remembrances admitted with tender encouragement. They are of the time and all its comforting and peaceful reassurances and of the history that reunited even upon earth the living and the dead, and of the broad beneficence and goodness that too many men have tried to tear to narrow shreds. Thank you for joining us for What Christmas Is As We Grow Older by Charles Dickens. We'll return with our second story right after these sponsor messages. Our second story today is called How the Captain Made Christmas by Thomas Nelson Page. This story was published in his collection of short stories titled The Burial of the Guns in 1894. It's about the importance of where you're from. This story is a young man's retelling of a memorable train ride in which the captain shared his stories of love and life to a group of men who were no longer strangers once they arrived in New Orleans for Christmas. It was just a few days before Christmas had the men around the large fireplace at the club had, not unnaturally, fallen to talking of Christmas. They were all men in the prime of life, and all or nearly all of them were from other parts of the country, men who had come to the great city to make their way in life, and who had, on the whole, made it in one degree or another, achieving sufficient success in different fields to allow of all being called successful men. Yet, as the conversation had proceeded, it had taken a reminiscent turn. When it began, only three persons were engaged in it, two of whom, McFeeters and Lespots, were in lounging chairs, with their feet stretched out towards the log fire, while the third, Newton, stood with his back to the great hearth and his coattails well divided. The other men were scattered about the room, one or two writing at tables, three or four reading the evening papers, and the rest talking and sipping whiskey and water, or only talking, or only sipping whiskey and water. As the conversation proceeded around the fireplace, however, one after another joined the group there until the circle included every man in the room. It had begun by Lespance, who had been looking intently at Newton for some moments as he stood before the fire with his legs well apart and his eyes fastened on the carpet, breaking the silence by asking suddenly, Are you going home? "'I don't know,' said Newton, doubtfully, now recalled from somewhere in dreamland, but so slowly that a part of his thoughts were still lingering there. "'I haven't made up my mind. I'm not sure that I can go so far as Virginia, and I have an invitation to a delightful place, a house party near here.' "'Newton, anybody would know that you were a Virginian,' said McFeeters, 
by the way you stand before that fire. Newton said, yes. And then, as the half-smile the charge had brought up died away, he said slowly, I was just thinking how good it felt, and I had gone back and was standing in the old parlor at home the first time I ever noticed my father doing it. I remember getting up and standing by him, a little scrap of a fellow, trying to stand just as he did, and I was feeling the fire just now, just as I did that night. That was, that was thirty-three years ago, said Newton, slowly, as if he were doling the years from his memory. Newton, is your father living? asked Lesponce. No, but my mother is, he said. She still lives at the old home in the country. From this the talk had gone on, and nearly all had contributed to it, even the most reticent of them, drawn out by the universal sympathy which the subject had called forth. The great city, with all its manifold interest, was forgotten, and the men of the world went back to their childhood and early life in little villages or on old plantations, and told incidents of the time when the outer world was unknown, and all things had those strange and large proportions which the mind of childhood gives. Old times were ransacked, and Christmas experiences in them were given without stint, and the season was voted, without dissent, to have been far ahead of Christmas now. Presently, one of the party said, "'Did any of you ever spend a Christmas on the cars? If you have not, thank heaven, and pray to be preserved from it henceforth, for I've done it, and I tell you it's next to purgatory. I spent one once stuck in a snowdrift, or almost stuck, for we were ten hours late and missed all connections, and the Christmas I had expected to spend with friends I passed in a nasty car with a surly Pullman conductor, an impudent porter, and a lot of fools, all of whom could have murdered each other, not to speak of a crying baby whose murder was perhaps the only thing we would have all united on. This harsh speech showed that the subject was about exhausted, and someone, a man who had come in only in time to hear the last speaker, had just hazarded the remark, in a faint imitation of an English accent, that the sub-officials in this country were a surly, ill-conditioned lot anyhow, and always were as rude as they dared to be. When Lespots, who had looked at the speaker lazily, said, "'Yes, I have spent a Christmas on a sleeping car, and, strange to say, I have a most delightful recollection of it.' This was surprising enough to have gained him a hearing anyhow, but the memory of the occasion was evidently sufficiently strong to carry Lespons over obstacles, and he went ahead. "'Has any of you ever taken the right train that goes from here south through the Cumberland and Shenandoah Valleys, or from Washington to strike that train?' No one seemed to have done so, and he went on. "'Well, do it, and you can even do it Christmas, if you get the right conductor. It's well worth doing the first chance you get.' "'for it's almost the prettiest country in the world that you go through. "'There's nothing I've ever seen lovelier than the parts of the Cumberland and Shenandoah Valleys. "'And the New River Valley is just as pretty. "'That background of blue beyond those rolling hills. "'You know, McFeeters.' "'McFeeters nodded, and he proceeded. "'I always go that way now when I go south. "'Well, I went south one winter just at Christmas, "'and I took that train by accident.' I was going to New Orleans to spend Christmas, and had expected to have gotten off to be there several days beforehand. 
but an unlooked-for matter had turned up and prevented my getting away, and I had given up the idea of going when I changed my mind. The fact is, I was in a row with a friend of mine there. I decided, on the spur of the moment, to go anyhow, and thus got off on the afternoon train for Washington, intending to run my luck for getting a sleeper there. This was the day before Christmas Eve, and I was due to arrive in New Orleans Christmas Day. Sometime. Well, when I got to Washington, there was not a berth to be had for love or money, and I was in a pickle. I fumed and fussed, abused the railroad companies, and got mad with the ticket agent, who seemed, I thought, to be very indifferent as to whether I went to New Orleans or not. And I had just decided to turn around and come back to New York, when the agent, who was making change for someone else, said, "'I'm not positive, but I think there's a train on such and such a road, and you may be able to get a berth on that. It leaves about this time, and if you hurry, you might be able to catch it.' He looked at his watch. "'Yes, you've just about time to stand a chance. Everything is late today. There are such crowds, and the snow and all.' I thanked him, feeling like a dog over my ill temper and rudeness to him, and decided to try. Anything was better than New York Christmas Day. So I jumped into a carriage and told the driver to drive like, like the wind, and he did. When we arrived at the station, the ticket agent could not tell me whether I could get a berth or not. The conductor had the diagram out at the train, but he thought there was not the slightest chance. I had gotten warmed up, however, by my friend's civility at the other station, and I meant to go there if there was any way to do it. So I grabbed up my bags and rushed out of the warm depot into the cold air again. I found the car and the conductor standing outside of it by the steps. The first thing that struck me was his appearance. Instead of being the dapper, young, naval officerish-looking fellow I was accustomed to, he was a stout, elderly man with bushy gray hair and a heavy, grizzled mustache who looked like an old field marshal. He was surrounded by quite a number of people all crowding about him and asking him questions at once, some of whose questions he was answering slowly as he pored over his diagram, and others of which he seemed to be ignoring. Some were querulous, some good-natured, and all impatient, but he answered them all with imperturbable good humor. It was very cold, so I pushed my way into the crowd. As I did so, I heard him say to someone, "'You asked me if the lower berths were all taken, did you not?' "'Yes, five minutes ago,' snapped the fellow, whom I had already heard swearing on the edge of the circle. "'Well, they are all taken, just as they were the first time I told you they were,' he said, and opened a despatch given him by his porter, a tall, black, elderly man with gray hair. I pushed my way in and asked him, in my most dulcet tone, if I could get an upper berth to New Orleans. I called him Captain, thinking him a pompous old fellow.' He was just beginning to speak to someone else, but I caught him, and he looked across the crowd and said, "'New Orleans!' My heart sank at the tone, and he went on talking to some other man. "'I told you that I would give you a lower berth, sir. I can give you one now. I have just got a message that the person who had lower two will not want it. Hold on, then. I'll take that—' "'Hold on, then. I'll take that lower,' called the man who had spoken before, over the crowd. "'I spoke for it first. "'No, you won't,' said the captain, who went on writing. The man pushed his way in angrily, a big, self-assertive fellow. He was evidently smarting from his first repulse. 
"'What's that? "'I did, I say. "'I was here before that man got here "'and asked you for a lower berth, "'and you said they were all taken.' "'The captain stopped and looked at him. "'My dear sir, I know you did, "'but this gentleman has a lady along.' "'But the fellow was angry. "'I don't care,' he said. "'I engaged the berth, and I know my rights. "'I mean to have that lower berth, "'or I'll see which is bigger. "'You are Mr. Pullman.' "'Just then a lady, who had come out on the steps, "'spoke to the captain about her seat in the car. "'He turned to her. "'My dear madam, you are all right. "'Just go in there and take your seat anywhere. "'When I come in, I will fix everything. "'Go straight into that car "'and don't come out in this cold air any more.' "'The lady went back, and the old fellow said, "'Nick, go in there and seat that lady, "'if you have to turn every man out of his seat.' "'Then, as the porter went in, "'he turned back to his irate friend. "'You don't mean that. "'You'd be the first man to give up your berth. "'This gentleman has his sick wife with him "'and has been ordered to take her south immediately, "'and she's going to have a lower berth "'if I have to turn every man in that car out. "'And if you were Mr. Pullman himself, "'I'd tell you the same thing.' "'The man fell back, baffled and humbled, "'and we all enjoyed it. "'Still, I was without a berth, "'so, with some misgiving, I began... "'Captain?' "'He turned to me. "'Oh, you want to go to New Orleans?' "'Yes, to spend Christmas. "'Any chance for me?' "'He looked at his watch. "'My dear young sir,' he said, "'go into the car and take a seat, "'and I'll do the best I can with you.' "'I went in, not at all sure that I should get a berth. "'This, of course, was only part of what went on, "'but the crowd had gotten into a good humor and was joking, "'and I had fallen into the same spirit.' The first person I looked for when I entered the car was, of course, the sick woman. I soon picked her out, a sweet, frail-looking lady with that fatal, transparent hue of skin and fine complexion. She was all muffled up, although the car was very warm. Every seat was either occupied or piled high with bags. Well, the train started, and in a little while the captain came in, and the way that old fellow straightened things out was a revelation. He took charge of the car and ran it as if he'd been the captain of a boat. At first, some of the passengers were inclined to grumble, but in a little while they gave in. As for me, I'd gotten an upper berth and felt satisfied. When I woke up the next morning, however, we were only a 150 miles from Washington and were standing still. The next day was Christmas, and every passenger on the train, except the sick lady and her husband, and the captain, "'had an engagement for Christmas dinner "'somewhere a thousand miles away. "'There had been an accident on the road. "'The train which was coming north "'had jumped the track at a trestle "'and torn a part of it away. Two or three of the trainmen had been hurt. "'There was no chance of getting by "'for several hours more. "'It was a blue party "'that assembled in the dressing room, "'and more than one cursed his luck. "'One man was talking of suing the company. "'I was feeling pretty gloomy myself.' "'when the captain came in. "'Well, gentlemen, Christmas gift. "'It's a fine morning. "'You must go out and taste it,' he said in a cheery voice, "'which made me feel fresher and better at once, "'and which brought a response from every man in the dressing room. "'Someone asked promptly how long we should be there. "'I can't tell you, sir, but some little time, several hours.' "'There was a groan. "'You'll have time to go over to the battlefield.' "'said the captain, still cheerily. 
were close to the field of one of the bitterest battles of the war. And then he proceeded to tell us about it briefly. He said, in an answer to a question, that he had been in it. "'On which side, Captain?' asked someone. "'On our side, sir, of course.' "'We decided to go over to the field, and after breakfast we did. "'The captain walked with us over the ground "'and showed us the lines of attack and defense, "'pointed out where the heaviest fighting was done, "'and gave a graphic account of the whole campaign. "'It was the only battlefield I have ever been over, "'and I was so much interested that when I got home "'I read up on that campaign, "'and that set me to reading up on the whole subject of the war. "'We walked back over the hills, "'and I never enjoyed a walk more.' I felt as if I'd got new strength from the cold air. The old fellow stopped at a little house on our way back and went in whilst we waited. When he came out, he had a little bouquet of geranium leaves and lemon verbena, which he had got. I had noticed them in the window as we went by, and when I saw the way the sick lady looked when he gave them to her, I wish I had brought them instead of him. Someone intent on knowledge asked him how much he paid for them. He said, Paid for them? Nothing. "'Did you know them before?' he asked. "'No, sir.' "'And that was all. "'A little while afterwards I saw him asleep in a seat, "'but when the train started he got up. "'The old captain by this time owned the car. "'He was not only an official, he was a host, "'and he did the honors as if he were in his own house "'and we were his guests. "'All was done so quietly and unobtrusively, too. "'He pulled up a blind here,' "'and drew one down there, just a few inches. "'To give you a little more light on your book, sir. "'To shut out a little of the glare, madam. "'Reading on the cars is a little more trying to the eyes "'than one is apt to fancy. "'He stopped to lean over and tell you "'that if you looked out of your window, "'you would see what he thought was one of the prettiest views in the world, "'or to mention the fact that on the right "'was one of the most celebrated old places in the state, "'a plantation which had once belonged to Colonel So-and-so.' "'one of the most remarkable men of his day, sir. "'His porter, Nicholas, was his admirable second, "'not a porter at all, but a body-servant, "'as different from the ordinary Pullman-car porter "'as light from darkness. "'In fact, it turned out that he had been an old servant of the captain's. "'I happened to speak of him to the captain, and he said, "'Yes, sir, he's a very good man. "'I raised him as a boy, or rather my father did. "'He comes of a good stock.' "'Plenty of sense. "'I became very intimate with the old fellow. "'You could not help it. "'He had a way about him that drew you out. "'I told him I was going to New Orleans "'to pay a visit to friends there. "'He said, "'Got a sweetheart there?' "'I was rather taken aback, but I told him, "'Yes.' "'He said he knew it as soon as I spoke to him on the platform. "'He asked me who she was, and I told him her name. "'He said to me, "'Ah, you lucky dog!' I told him I did not know that I was not most unlucky, for had no reason to think she was going to marry me. He said, You tell her I say you'll be all right. I felt better, especially when the old chap said, I'll tell her so myself. She always traveled with him when she came north, he said. I did not know at all that I was all right. In fact, I was rather low down just then about my chances, which was the only reason I was so anxious to go to New Orleans. "'and I wanted just that encouragement, and it helped me mightily. "'I began to think Christmas on the cars wasn't quite so bad after all. "'He drew me on, 
"'and before I knew it I told him all about myself. "'It was the strangest thing. "'I had no idea in the world of talking about my matters. "'I'd hardly ever spoken of her to a soul, "'but the old chap had a way of making you feel "'that he would be certain to understand you and could help you. "'He told me about his own case, "'and it wasn't so different from mine. "'He lived in Virginia before the war, "'came from up near Lynchburg somewhere, "'belonged to an old family there, "'and had been in love with his sweetheart for years, "'but he could never make any impression on her. "'She was a beautiful girl,' he said, "'and the greatest belle in the country round. "'Her father was one of the big lawyers there "'and had a fine old place, "'and the stable was always full of horses "'of the young fellows who used to be coming to see her. "'And she used to make me sick, I tell you,' he said. "'I used to hate them all,' he said. "'I wasn't afraid of them, "'but I used to hate a man to look at her. "'It seemed so impudent in him.' "'and I'd have been jealous if she'd have looked at the sun. "'Well, I didn't know what to do. "'I'd have been ready to fight them all for her, "'if that would have done any good. "'But it wouldn't. "'I didn't have any right to get mad with them for loving her, "'and if I'd got into a row, "'she'd have sent me off in a jiffy. "'But just then the war came on, "'and it was a godsend to me. "'I went in first thing. "'I made up my mind to go in and fight like five thousand furies, "'and I thought maybe that would win her. "'And it did.' "'It worked first-rate. "'I went in as a private, "'and I got a bullet through me in about six months. "'Through my right lung. "'And that laid me off for a year or so. "'Then I went back, "'and the boys made me a lieutenant. "'And when the captain was made a major, "'I was made captain. "'I was offered something higher once or twice, "'but I thought I'd rather stay with my company. "'I knew the boys, and they knew me, "'and we had got sort of used to each other, "'to depending on each other, as it were.' The war fixed me all right. When I went home that first time, my wife had come right around, and as soon as I was well enough, we were married. I always said if I could find that Yankee that shot me, I'd like to make him a present. I found out that the great trouble with me had been that I had not been bold enough. I used to let her go her own way too much, and seemed to be afraid of her. And I was afraid of her, too. I bet that's your trouble, sir. Are you afraid of her? I told him I thought I was. Well, sir, he said, it'll never do. You mustn't let her think that. Never. You cannot help being afraid of her, for every man is that. But it is fatal to let her know it. Stand up, sir. Stand up for your rights. If you're bound to get down on your knees, and every man feels that he is, don't do it. Get up and run out and roll in the dust outside somewhere where she can't see you. Why, sir, he said, "'It doesn't do to even let her think she's having her own way. "'Half the time she's only testing you, "'and she doesn't really want what she pretends to want. "'Of course, I'm speaking of before marriage. "'After marriage, she always wants it, "'and she's going to have it anyway, "'and the sooner you find that out and give in, the better. "'You must consider this, however, "'that her way after marriage "'is always laid down to her with reference to your good. "'She thinks about you a great deal more than you do about her.' "'and she's always working out something that is for your advantage. "'She'll let you do some things as you wish, "'just to make you believe you're having your own way, "'but she's just been pretending to think otherwise, "'to make you feel good.' "'This sounded so much like sense "'that I asked him how much a man ought to stand from a woman. "'Stand, sir?' he said. "'Why, everything. "'Everything that does not take away your self-respect. "'I said I believed if he'd let a woman do it, "'she'd wipe her shoes on him.' "'Why, of course she will,' he said. 
"'And why shouldn't she? "'A man is not good enough for a good woman to wipe her shoes on. "'But if she's the right sort of woman, "'she won't do it in company, "'and she won't let others do it at all. "'She'll keep you for her own wiping.' "'There's a lot of sense in that response,' said one of his auditors, "'at which there was a universal smile of assent. "'Lesponce said he'd found it out, and proceeded. "'Well, we got to a little town in Virginia. "'I forget the name of it, where we had to stop a short time. "'The captain had told me that his home was not far from there, "'and his old company was raised around there. "'Quite a number of the old fellows lived about there yet,' he said, "'and he saw some of them nearly every time he passed through.' "'as they kept the run of him. "'He did not know that he'd find any of them out today, "'as it was Christmas, "'and they would all be at home,' he said. "'As the train drew up, "'I went out on the platform, however, "'and there was quite a crowd assembled. "'I was surprised to find it so quiet, "'for at other places through which we had passed "'they had been having hijinks, "'firing off crackers and making things lively. "'Here the crowd seemed to be quiet and solemn.' "'and I heard the captain's name. "'Just then he came out on the platform, "'and someone called out, "'Hey, there he is, now!' "'And then a second such a cheer went up "'as you never heard. "'They crowded around the old fellow "'and shook hands with him "'and hugged him as if he'd been a girl. "'I suppose you're referring to a time "'before you were married,' "'interrupted someone. "'But Lesponce did not heed him. "'He went on. It seemed the rumor had got out that morning that it was the captain's train that had gone off the track and that the captain had been killed in the wreck and this crowd had assembled to meet the body. "'We were going to give you a big funeral, Captain,' said one old fellow. "'They got you while you're living, but we claim you when you're dead. We ain't going to let them have you then. We're going to put you to sleep in old Virginia.' The old fellow was much affected and made them a little speech. He introduced us to them all. He said, "'Gentlemen, these are my boys, my neighbors and family. "'And then, boys, these are my friends. "'I don't know all their names yet, but they are my friends. "'And we were. "'He rushed off to send a telegram to his wife in New Orleans, "'because, as he said afterwards, "'she, too, might get hold of the report that he'd been killed, "'and a Christmas message would set her up. "'She'd be a little low down at his not getting there,' he said, "'as he'd never missed a Christmas day at home since 64. "'When dinner time came, "'he was invited in by pretty nearly everyone in the car, "'but he declined. "'He said he had to attend to a matter. "'I was going in with a party, "'but I thought the old fellow would be lonely, "'so I waited and listened "'and insisted on his dining with me. "'I found that it had occurred to him "'that a bowl of eggnog would make it seem more like Christmas.' "'and he had telegraphed ahead to a friend "'at a little place to have the materials ready. "'Well, they were on hand when we got there, "'and we took them aboard, "'and the old fellow made one of the finest eggnogs "'you ever tasted in your life. "'The rest of the passengers had no idea what was going on, "'and when the old chap came in with a big bowl, "'wreathed in holly, borne by Nick, "'and the old captain marching behind, "'there was quite a cheer. "'It was offered to the ladies first, of course,' "'and then the men assembled in the smoker, "'and the captain did the honors. "'He did them handsomely, too. "'Made us one of the prettiest little speeches you ever heard. "'Said that Christmas was not dependent on the fireplace, "'however much a roaring fire might contribute to it. "'That it was in everyone's heart "'and might be enjoyed as well in a railway car as in a hall. 
and that in this time of change and movement it behooved us all to try and keep up what was good and cheerful and bound us together, and to remember that Christmas was not only a time for merrymaking, but was the time when the Savior of the world came among men to bring peace and good will, and that we should remember all our friends everywhere. And gentlemen, he said, there are two toasts I always like to propose at this time, and which I will ask you to drink. The first is to my wife. It was drunk, you may believe. And the second is, my friends, all mankind. This too was drunk, and just then someone noticed that the old fellow had nothing but a little water in his glass. Why, Captain, he said, you're not drinking. That's not fair. Well, no, sir, said the old fellow. I never drink anything on duty. You see, it is one of the regulations, and I subscribe to them. And, of course, I could not break my word. Nick there will drink my share, however, when you are through. He isn't held up to quite such high accountability. And, sure enough, Nick drained off a glass and made a speech which got him a handful of quarters. Well, of course, the old captain owned not only the car, but all in it by this time. "'and we spent one of the jolliest evenings you ever saw. "'The glum fellow who had insisted on his rights at Washington "'made a little speech "'and paid the captain one of the prettiest compliments I ever heard. "'He said he had discovered "'that the captain had given him his own lower berth "'after he'd been so rude to him, "'and that instead of taking his upper berth "'as he'd supposed he would have done, "'he'd given that to another person "'and had sat up himself all night. "'That other person was I.' The old fellow had given the grumbler his lower in the smoking room, and had given me his upper. The fellow made him a very handsome apology before us all, and the captain had his own berth that night, you may believe. Well, we were all on the Kiviva to see the captain's wife when we got to New Orleans. The captain had told us that she always came down to the station to meet him, so we were all on the lookout for her. He told me the first thing that he did was to kiss her, "'and then he went and filed his reports, "'and then they went home together. "'And if you'll come and dine with me,' he said to me, "'I'll give you the best dinner you ever had. "'Real old Virginia cooking. "'Nick's wife is our only servant, "'and she's an excellent cook. "'I promised him to go one day, "'though I could not go the first day. "'Well, the meeting between the old fellow and his wife "'was worth the trip to New Orleans to see.' I had formed a picture in my mind of a queenly-looking woman, a southern matron. You know how you do. And when we drew into the station, I looked around for her. As I did not see her, I watched the captain. He got off, and I missed him in the crowd. Presently, though, I saw him, and I asked him, Captain, is she here? Yes, sir, she is. She never misses. That's the sort of a wife to have, sir. Come here and let me introduce you. He pulled me up and introduced me to a sweet little old lady in an old threadbare dress and wrap and a little faded bonnet, whom I had seen as we came up, watching eagerly for someone, but whom I had not thought of as being possibly the captain's grand dame. The captain's manner, however, was beautiful. My dear, this is my friend, Mr. Lesponce, and he has promised to come and dine with us, he said, with the air of a lord. "'and then he leaned over and whispered something to her. "'Why, she's coming to dine with us today,' she said, "'with a very cheery laugh. "'And then she turned and gave me a look "'that swept me from top to toe, 
"'as if she were weighing me to see if I do. "'I seemed to pass, for she came forward "'and greeted me with a charming cordiality "'and invited me to dine with them, "'saying that her husband had told her "'I knew Miss So-and-so, "'and she was coming that day, "'and if I had no other engagement, "'they would be very glad if I would come that day too.' Then she turned to the captain and said, "'I saved Christmas dinner for you, "'for when you didn't come, "'I knew the calendar and all the rest of the world were wrong, "'so today is our Christmas.' "'Well, that's all,' said Lesponce. "'I did not mean to talk so much, "'but the old captain is such a character. "'I wish you could know him. "'You'd better believe I went, "'and I never had a nicer time. "'They were just as poor as they could be, in one way.' "'but in another they were rich. "'He had a sweet little home in their three rooms. "'I found that my friend always dined with them "'one day in the Christmas week, "'and I happened to hit that day.' "'He leaned back. "'That was the beginning of my good fortune,' "'he said slowly, and then stopped. "'Most of the party knew Lesponte's charming wife, "'so no further explanation was needed. "'One of them said presently, however, "'The Spons, why didn't you fellows get him some better place?' "'He was offered a place,' said Le Spons. "'The fellow who had made the row about the lower berth "'turned out to be a great friend of the head of Pullman Company, "'and he got him the offer of a place at three times the salary he got, "'but after consideration, he declined it. "'He would have had to come north, and he said that he could not do that. "'His wife's health was not very robust.' "'and he did not know how she could stand the cold climate. "'Then she had made her friends, "'and she was too old to try to make a new set. "'And finally their little girl was buried there, "'and they did not want to leave her, so he declined. "'When she died, he said, "'or whichever one of them died first, "'the other would come back home to the old place in Virginia "'and bring the other two with him, "'so they could all be at home together again. "'Meantime they were very comfortable,' "'and well-satisfied. "'There was a pause after Lesponce ended, "'and then one of the fellows rang the bell and said, "'Let's drink to the old captain's health,' "'which was unanimously agreed to. "'Newton walked over to a table and wrote a note, "'and then slipped out of the club, "'and when next day I inquired after him of the boy at the door, "'he said he had left word to tell anyone who asked for him "'that he would not be back till after Christmas, "'that he had gone home to Virginia.' "'Several of the other fellows went off home, too, myself among them, "'and I was glad I did, for I heard one of the men say "'he never knew the club so deserted as it was that Christmas day.'" Thanks for joining us for How the Captain Made Christmas by Thomas Nelson Page. Thanks for joining us here at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We always appreciate reviews, so if you have a chance this Christmas season, please do send us a kind review. Reviews help new listeners decide to give us a try. Also, this Christmas season, we'd like to say thank you to our many Patreon supporters who support us at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. 
patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. Thank you so much for your support this year. And to everyone who shared our shows or showed others how to follow our show on one of their apps, we appreciate your help very, very much. Thank you. As you know, we bring new short stories every Sunday at noon Eastern Time and every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Until our next episode, everyone, stay safe, enjoy the holiday season, and we'll be back soon.